Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 25th, 2015. This is episode 1542 of the Survival Podcast, and today we're going to talk about starting, running, and managing a business. And... Um, Something I don't talk about a tremendous amount on the show is a dedicated uh, type of show. I often mention it. I'll often come out of a specific subject as to how it might be monetized and be made into a business. But I don't generally do standalone shows. This is how to build a business generic. Uh, there's some reasons for that that I'll cover in a minute. But before I do that, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you uh, by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal, who is the original Survival Podcast sponsor. When there were a couple dozen people listening to the show, one of them was Rick Vic Rontala over at Safe Castle. And he said, hey, Jack, we want to sponsor what you're doing. And uh, here's a business principle for you. I, I knew I could not give them an ROI, so I said, not yet. Be patient. Let me build this up to something. I'll put something together, and I'll get back to you. Uh, quite a bit later... We had built up something pretty special. A few thousand people were listening. And I came back to them with the uh, sponsorship program that we use to this day for all of our sponsors. And they were still there, and they were still ready, and they became a sponsor. And they've been a supporter of the show now. And we're going into our seventh year. And they've been here almost since the beginning. I would say six and a half years as a sponsor, but that's only because I wouldn't take their money for six months. Um, that's a lot of loyalty. So when you're thinking about where to get your prepping stuff, Consider Safe Castle. And next up, no, they have a really great program called the Discount Buyers Club. $50 one time, and you have it for the rest of your life. And it gives you discounts on just about everything they sell. You can get it for free as a member of my support brigade. Just another way they support what we do here at TSP. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Ammo is the most important moving part in your weaponry. It really is. A gun without ammo is an expensive club. Yesterday, I happened to, for some ungodly known reason, be in Walmart. Oh, I remember my wife made me go. And I walked by the, uh, the ammo caves, and there's still no 22 long rifles sitting there. And a lot of other stuff missing. Over at Bulk Ammo, they've got it all. Check them out today and make sure you bulk up on your ammo. The best place to do that, bulkammo.com, where they ship your ammo to you so quick, you'll wonder how they get it done like that. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. It's where I get my ammo in bulk and where you should, too. Next up today... Let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year being 1542. Today, Alex Shrugged has three for us, as usual. In the year 1542, we have the Christian mystic St. John of the Cross is born. China versus Portugal. It's not a soccer match. It's known as the Ningbo Massacre. And lording over the Irish. You actually see, I think, the genesis of the Protestant Catholic uh Uh, long-standing hundreds of years of uh, problems in, in Ireland uh, beginning there. But I'm going to read China versus Portugal. Official relations with Japanese entities took place at the designated port of Ningbo after some negotiating, read that as bribes, the Portuguese were able to land there too. The word Ningbo means serene wave, but it has become anything but serene as the Portuguese set up a colony. 
This was not the agreement, and the Portuguese are setting fire to the villages and pillaging. With serious, with a serious Mongol invasion already in progress, the Ming Dynasty doesn't need another headache. Chinese soldiers march into Ningbo and wipe out the Portuguese. All Portuguese everywhere in China are sentenced to death. The Spanish are considered Portuguese since all the barbarians look alike. The red-haired barbarians, the Dutch, are distinguishable from the Portuguese, though. No fooling around. This is my take by Alex Shrug. No fooling around, no misunderstanding. The Portuguese were trying to take over China by intimidation and force. It was ugly. One Portuguese commander said, A Chinese junkman knew more about courtesy and humanity, humility than a European knight. The Chinese were already a little paranoid about foreigners. In the end, they will want foreign goods and gold enough to continue trading, but they are not going to be pushed around. Well, Portuguese will find other people to push around in the Indies. I think this is a classic case of a somewhat advanced Western society landing on the shores of a quaint-looking place with seemingly inferior technology and feeling much as they do in the New World that they can push these people around because they're more primitive than they are and having their heads rolled for it. Underestimating your enemy is a big, big mistake. Sometimes somebody else underestimating your enemy could be a big mistake for you. Like if you were a Spaniard in China at this time. What a shitty thing to have. I didn't do it. Doesn't matter. Off with your head. Uh, it also notes that it says that they can determine that the red-haired barbarians, the Dutch, are distinguishable from the Portuguese. I wonder if that actually spared them, though. Or if that was just like, up, oh, you go too, foreigner. I, I don't know. I don't know. That'd be interesting to know. Anyway, with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show, starting a business. So, and managing and running and operating a business. I want to start out with why I, I've gotten more and more wary about talking about business generally as a, as a top-line topic. Um, first of all, and if this offends you, good. Because I want you to be offended so that you'll stop screwing around and go get shit done. In fact, let me talk about the image I picked for today's show. It's a boxing glove. And it says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Mike Tyson, right? And I'll tell you a little story about that in a bit. But that was what I had in mind when I came up with this first bullet point for you today. Many who want to hear about starting a business are more interested in intellectual masturbation than actually doing it. I have no interest in that. I know people that listen to business podcast after business podcast after business podcast and read business books and read business audio, and they're always getting ready to do something. Get off your ass and get shit done. Okay? That's how I feel about this. You will never learn baseball truly by reading about baseball and watching other people play baseball. You are not going to be whoever's the home run slugger of the day today just by watching him hit balls. You will probably never hit as many home runs as that whoever he is hits, uh, even in the minors, let alone the majors, but you can learn to hit a ball. It's not that you can't learn something by evaluating the technique of somebody that's really good. It's that in the end, you learn a game by playing it, not by watching it, not by observing it, not by reading about it. Business is a game. It Make no mistake about it, it's a game, and we keep score with dollars or euros or whatever market you're in. We keep score with money. That's how we know who's winning and who's losing. Get in the game. Next, I cringe. I mean, I absolutely cringe at the thought of someone not pursuing an idea just because I don't personally think it's a good idea. 
There are plenty of successful businesses out there that I would have said were not a good idea before they were created. Let me give you one that we all probably know about. We all think it's probably stupid, but it makes billions of dollars. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I remember when this thing surfaced. Now, I know a lot more about business today than I did when this thing came up, but I still think it's one of the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest things I've ever seen. When I first saw this, this thing, I looked at it and said, the kids old enough to appreciate that are not going to fall for this. This is We're way too far in the future. This looks like Godzilla from the 1960s, and it's even worse than that. This will not float. It is a billion-dollar enterprise today. So if I could be wrong about that, I could be wrong about your idea. Now, when someone brings me an idea, and it seems like they're about to go into action, and it seems like there's ways that you could circumvent a lot of potential misery, I'll try to point you around the misery. If someone says, well, I'm going to do all this, and then I'm going to produce food, and then I'm going to sell it, well, if your monetization is to sell food, why don't you go get food that already exists and try selling it first? Just to see if you can build a market, and then whatever you put into it on a production side, you just increase your margins, would be one example. But in the end, I don't want anybody not pursuing a business, because you're going to learn how to run your business by doing it. I hate physical products. I despise physical products. I don't want to shift product. I don't want an inventory product. I'm going to have to have employees to do this. There's no way I can ship enough product alone to make it worth doing. I despise physical product. Why in the hell would I sell a gadget for $50 that I have $25 into by the time it gets out of my hands to make $25 but I can sell a non-physical product for $50 do absolutely F all nothing, because the computer does everything, and I get $50 total profit. And, and the answer is because there's a huge market for physical goods. Look around your house. Everything in your home that you didn't make yourself is something somebody else manufactured and shipped to you, and, and, and multiple people probably made money on it. And there's ways to do physical products where you don't touch anything. We sold DVDs for years when, when it was still a better model than doing um, downloadable video. And we made a lot of money doing DVDs. And we never touched a product except when we ordered some for ourselves. We never packaged a product. We built it. We set up the, we got all the editing done. We sent it away. We got to burn a disc. We, set, we, we went to a company that stocked them. And when an order came in, a company called Corporate Disc took the order, filled the order, and charged us a fee. And we never, ever touched a product. So I was even in a physical products business. It was still an information business. And the information was the lion's share of the value in the product. Okay? But that's an example of me breaking my own rule. I hate physical products, but I'm in the physical product business. Um, had the nightmares occur not occurred with Mulligan Mint, we were doing really well with that business model. It would have worked really well. And physical silver is like a physical commodity. It's, it's a physical product. You can hold it in your hand. Again, I didn't touch the physical product, but it was legitimate. So I'll, I'll, say, I'll say, I hate physical products. And then I've got two places where I've done it at least. Right? We have the TSP gear shop. Again, I don't touch it, but Kelly John Doe does a great job with the gear shop. You know, And it's a profitable business. So it, you, you can't just... See, here's the problem. People say, well... What will happen is I'll say, you know, what I think doesn't matter. And people say, but look, I think you're a genius at business. Okay, if I'm a genius at business because I have a successful business, then drive up and down a town square and look at every business that's there. 
that's it's been there for more than a couple of years and it's not going away, then all of those people are geniuses too. It, it doesn't make me a genius just because I'm successful. I'm successful in a unique, different model, a different way, and that's great. And if you want to emulate that model, go ahead. I, I, I never get upset about that, but it doesn't mean it's right for you, and it doesn't mean that what I say should be taken as gospel, especially when it comes to business. Another example of the physical products business, my, one of my best friends in the world is Brian Black over at ITS Tactical. Uh, Brian and Kelly are like extended family to Dorothy and I. And their business is by and large based on physical product. Brian took his talent as a graphics designer and being able to figure out things that were really cool and created all this cool merchandise. And they run a great, successful business. They've had to move multiple times to have more space to serve their market because of their level of success. So it's primarily an online magazine, but the monetization is selling their branded products. That's awesome. So just because I would say, like, I think it's, you know, I don't like physical products, doesn't, wouldn't mean I'm right. So you can't come to me and say, well, I'm thinking about doing this, and then expect me to, like, bless it. Because here's the next one. I cringe even more at someone going after an idea because I think it's a good idea. If somebody presents an idea to me and I say, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a valid business idea. And they're not really committed to business. They just think chasing the idea is the business. That, that, that I, I worry that someone's going to quit their job when they're not ready. You know, I worry someone's going to go out there and, and have a good job with good benefits. And because I said the idea was sound, They go out and start a business and have some money put aside and pay themselves a salary out of it and sit on their ass and not get anything done except intellectually masturbate about how great their idea is and not make money and end up in a, in a bad way because they pursued something on my recommendation. I don't want that either. You have to be smart about this. You have to make these decisions for yourself. My ideas can be adapted to your reality, I think, is, is the most important thing. The next one is... Most of you, and I do say most of you, that talk to me about business anyway, refuse to accept these two things, tax attorney and a CPA. Every single time I bring up business, it leads to tax and legal questions. To be blunt, I don't effing know what your individual issues are. I can't and won't give this advice. Please stop asking me. I can't tell you what type of corporation to set up. I don't know jack shit about you, and the time that you would spend giving me the information still won't tell me what I need to know. I am not a lawyer. I am not a tax attorney. I am not a certified public accountant. I should not be telling you what structure to use for your business. I can tell you all about C-Corps and S-Corps and LLCs and where nonprofits make sense and where they don't. But in the end, you shouldn't make any decision about the structure of an entity without discussing it with a professional that understands your individual situation. Period. The end. Infinity. Don't ask me. I have gotten to the point where I won't even entertain it. I will respond to emails about this. CPA and tax attorney. The end. Bye. Or that is all. Jack. Okay? And I, I will not deviate from that And I will not talk about business if I'm continually harassed about it. Because I don't, I can't know. Well, what kind of business structure should I use? Okay, where are you? Well, I'm in, say what, Neo, Georgia. Say such a place exists. I don't know what your local ordinances are. Should I get a business license? I don't know what your local ordinances are. Why the hell would you get a license if you're not required to? Are you? I don't know. 
How would I know? Well, what area is best in the state of Georgia for a business? Of, I don't know. Talk to a real estate agent that's not an idiot. Talk to an attorney. Talk to a CPA. Talk to Chambers of Commerce. Talk to people that know the answer to this stuff. Stop thinking because I built a successful business that I know what's going on in your backyard. I don't. And let me tell you why this is important. There's a lot of people out there selling how-to business information for a whole lot of money. The minute somebody is willing to answer that question for you and they are not a tax attorney or a CPA or a very informed business person about your market, they are a lying effing thief and you need to run away from them and never do business with them because they don't effing know either and they're too dishonest or too stupid to admit it. Either is bad. So when somebody says, you should do an LLC, and they don't know what your business operations model is, how many other people are involved in it, what your local and state ordinances say about the, the actions of an LLC in your, you know, or you should incorporate in Delaware. Why? Because it's, 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 it's one of the most friendly states to corporations. Is it friendly to your corporation? Oh, no. Well, you don't know. You go to Delaware with a corporation if you think you have a high propensity to be sued. And running a corporation out of the state of operations is a lot of times far more complicated and doesn't really get around a lot of the state-level taxation that people make it out to. So you have to talk to a CPA and a tax attorney. Yes, they're going to charge you money because they're going to save you money. And if you won't spend a few hundred bucks each for a basic consultation with a CPA and a tax attorney, okay, and you're going into a business that you really believe requires this type of structure in the very beginning, and it may not, okay, you have no business being in business because you're going to be dead-ass broke in a couple months, okay, because you can't think straight, and you're so worried about saving money, you're unwilling to do what's necessary to make money. Now, let me counter that a little bit. When I started TSP, I just put up a blog and started doing a podcast. Okay? That's it. I didn't worry about all this shit. I just got shit done. Sometimes you can do that. If you're doing a blog, if you're doing audio, if you're doing video, if you're doing something that's primarily web-centric, you don't need to make these decisions early on. Get some revenue, then go see a CPA or a tax attorney. They'll be able to make better recommendations for you. Just do it as self-employment income in the beginning. It's fine. Now, if you're taking an excavator and digging ditches in somebody's backyard, you need some freaking insurance, you need a corporate structure to protect your personal assets, and you need to take your ass to a CPA and a tax attorney that understands the law in your area and find out what you need to do that the right way. Got it? Okay, fine. That's why I have talked about this less. And I, I know I'm beating it up now. I know the horse is dead, and I've got a giant bat, and I'm pounding the shit out of the horse. But it's because by the end of this week, somebody that listened to this show is going to ask me, and they're going to say, I understand all that, but... And I'm going to respond with, tax attorney and CPA, leave me alone, go away by the end. Got it? Just to be clear. All right, now... What I want to start out with, though, on general business principles, you're going to build a business. There are rules to business. And if you go take a 
business course. You will learn real rules of business. In spite of how I beat the shit out of the public education system and higher education, you will learn legitimate, relevant rules of business that do apply, that are real, and they're rules. They're not rules because if you don't do them, somebody's going to smack your hand and say you're a bad boy and charge you a fine or put you in a jail cell. They're rules because when you violate them, they hurt you. Okay, So one rule that I would tell you that's just like a general rule is you should not run down the street full speed, get going as fast as you can, and Pete Rose face first slide on the, on the hardball road. You shouldn't do that. It's a rule. Now, no one, unless you're doing it out in front of a busy street where you're causing a disruption, is going to do anything to you because you did that, but violating the rule hurts. So most of us are smart enough to go, I'm not going to do that. There's no one's, I'm not even sliding in the first base or second base here. I am doing this just to be stupid. It's going to hurt. I'm not going to do it. All right? So many of the rules of business are like that. They're not laws. They're not codes. They're things you do or you don't do if you don't want to be injured, whether it's from a legal liability standpoint, whether it's from revenue sacrifice, whether it's from leaving money on the table, whether it's from pissing off too many customers, whatever it is. I'm not going to get into the high-level intellectual rules that you would hear in a college course today. I'm going to talk about some rules of business that I, I find that most people don't really talk about. The first rule is your market is more important than your desires. I talk to so many entrepreneurs, well, what I want is and what I believe is, and okay, so I think you need to take your wants, your desires, and your ideology and put them right smack in your back pocket, right where your billfold is. So it's not that it's not important. Right, My right back pocket has my wallet in it. It has my ID, my credit cards, money, etc. Okay, some other everyday carry stuff. It's very important to me. My challenge coin's in there. Okay, and So just because it's in my back pocket doesn't mean it's not important to me, but I'm not going to make stupid decisions because of my desires. What my market wants, what my market is willing to pay for, so long as it doesn't truly violate my ethics, is what's important to me. So, for instance, I met Curtis Stone of Permaculture Voices. And he was talking about how in the beginning it was really important to him since he was going to do this green-based local permaculture business that he would dig all his garden beds by hand. And this is a guy that farms about a quarter of an acre, most of which he doesn't even own. It's in other people's backyard. And he makes a six-figure income doing it. So this is a successful business. If you make $100,000 doing anything, you are successful. Okay, I, that, I, I, there's other ways to measure success, but that's one of them, right? So he said in the beginning, that's what we want to do. Plus, he had this like trailer he built and his bicycle, and he delivered like all his chefs that he delivered product to. He would like ride his bike to the the, the restaurant and deliver, and it was great marketing and all. But in the end, he ended up buying a truck, and he ended up buying a cultivator, like a walk behind tractor, to do a lot of his bed preparation and and what have you. Why? Because it works better. So he wanted to be sustainable, but let's face it, putting a tablespoon of gasoline in a garden cultivator to cultivate you know, 20 rows is pretty sustainable for the amount of food that's coming out compared to how industrial ag does it. Having your customer pissed off because you're not there in time and you can only take so much on a trailer behind a bike Versus being able to deliver what the customer expects, high-quality produce, when you promised it, as much as you promised it, every time is more important than this etherical principle. So Curtis stayed true to his core belief of sustainability and being green and doing the right thing and local food and what have you 
but also face the reality. My market wants this shit now. So that could be a hundred different ways that could play out for you. But there's so many people married to what they believe that they can't deliver what their market wants. Okay. The next thing, passion is great, but passion in the absence of substance equals stupidity. I am one of the business teachers, mentors, whatever you want to call us out there that says, follow your passion. And there's a whole group of other people that are the counter-passion group. One of my really people I really admire in business is Mark Cuban, and he is of the other persuasion. Don't follow your passion. Well, Mark is full of shit, okay, when he says that. Here's why. Mark Cuban is a billionaire from following his passion. Mark Cuban loves basketball. That's why he owns the Dallas Mavericks with all his billions today. That's why with all the things he could have done with all his money, the first thing he did before Shark Tank, before HDNet, before all the other businesses that this billionaire has stuck his fingers into, some successful, some failures, all of it, the first thing he did when he cashed that big-ass check from Yahoo and went, tag, you're it, bitches. I got my money. You're go- you, you just bought a data center. Hope you know what to do with it. By the way, Yahoo had no idea what to do with it. Um, was go out and buy the Dallas Mavericks because he loves basketball. The Dallas Mavericks have become an incredibly successful, from a business standpoint, franchise under the guidance of Mark Cuban, who also is following his passion in building that franchise because he loves basketball. The Dallas Mavericks, who couldn't buy a ticket to the playoffs, have actually been to the playoffs several times and won a championship under Mark Cuban's leadership, because he's following his passion. Oh, but dear friends, it gets so much better for this counter-passion guy, because how did Mark Cuban make his money? Some people that are dumbasses and don't know say, he sold a domain to Yahoo. Again, Yahoo didn't know to do what they bought. That's Yahoo's problem. That's not Mark's problem. Okay, Mark Cuban built AudioNet. They became Broadcast.com. It was specifically developed so that radio stations could broadcast over the Internet. What does that have to do with basketball? Well, see, Patrick, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mark met a gentleman named Patrick. Patrick worked for J.C. Penney's in her technology department uh, and was paid a paltry raise for what he did, but he understood audio. And with some other individuals such as Curtis Rogers and some other folks that I know from that group, they all got together and figured out they could make audio go across the Internet. This is long before people were thinking about things like YouTube. The bandwidth wasn't there to support video, but audio could be broken down, you know, 32 kilobits a second, like I podcast that, and that can be done even over dial-up. We need to do this, and we know the speed's coming anyway, so let's get this done. But what drove it? See, Mark Cuban was driving around in his car in Dallas and listening to college basketball on AM radio and had an extreme desire to listen to Indiana Pacers basketball, which isn't on AM radio here. So the entire thing was, how do I get this thing available to me here? Because it's what he was passionate about. So he's full of shit. But the substance went with the passion. Okay? So... Was the idea, I am passionate about basketball, in of itself a business? No, but making audio portable across the Internet and making it accessible to radio stations who had no idea how to do it for themselves and putting a bunch of people together in a room that hustled every day. See, this is what broadcast did before Yahoo screwed it up. They had people sitting in cubicles contacting radio station managers across the country every day. Let's put your shit online. 
Let's do that. Let's broadcast to the world instead of just Sheboyganville. We can do that for you. Here's all it takes to get you set up. I'll get you set up right now. Your radio broadcast will be online in a couple days. And they were. That was viable. That was substance that matched the passion for basketball. So when Cuban says, no, it's not about following your passion, he's telling the truth and a lie. You can have a business that you don't give a damn about the product, and you can be incredibly successful with it if you are passionate about the business itself. But passion is important, but you've got to have substance. Or you get stupid, because you believe in the mission, and you believe in the ideal to the exclusion of reality, logic, and profit. Okay, A business that's not profit is a professional begging organization. That's all that it is. And you can probably make more money as a professional beggar under an overpass with dirty clothes than a business that's losing money. Okay. Next, it is always more work than you thought it would be. Whatever you think it's going to be like when you get a business operational and running, it's going to be harder, it's going to be worse, it's going to take more effort, it's going to be harder, it's going to be worse, it's going to take more effort. Got it? That is a rule of business. It will never be as easy as you think. Ever. Ever. And what will make this worse is the next rule. No one will ever do it as good as you ever, ever, ever. Got it? No employee... No contractor, no one you make a partner in your business is going to work as hard as you, be as dedicated as you, and be as committed as you, period. If you find one, you are a very lucky person. And generally, when you find the one with the intention and the desire and the ethics and the willingness, you don't find someone that also has the intellectual capability to, 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 to use all of those things fully. So they'll do everything they can for you, like to the point of like they're almost loyal to a fault, but they just are not switched on enough. And it's it, it's sad, and I'll tell you why. Most people that have all those things plus have the capability of making them happen, go create their own business. They don't need you. They don't need you. So if that's the case, you have to understand that whatever you develop, if it's going to be turned over to someone else to do, has to be developed at a, a, a point where 50% of your effort is good enough. And then shoot for 70%. If you find somebody that will do 70% of what you would do, and you create a system that functions at 50, you have a home run. Otherwise, you're a sole proprietorship like I am. And you set up people with units, and if they fail, they fail. doesn't hurt your core business. Don't give a shit. You know, succeed or... And I've done it for a lot of people... And most people don't succeed with it. And that just tells you everything you need to know right there. And that's their unit. They can make it as successful as they want. You know, I'll take 10% in order to give you all this exposure and all this tutelage and everything else. And they half-ass it the entire time. Why? Back to the other rule. It's always more work than you thought it would be. It's always harder. It's always more difficult. There's always something else to be doing. There's always something else to talk about. There's always something else to massage your brain about. But doing shit is the important thing. And then the next one is if you focus on your competition, it's most often really stupid. Now, if your competition is doing something that's really, really, really working, not like their marketing says it's working, but you're losing customers because you're not meeting the need and they are, that you pay attention to. But I, this is from little entrepreneurs 
to great big companies. I remember consulting with a company in telecommunications that had a very specialized software project or product and saying, you need to be doing these things. And one was you need to be doing a press release at least once a quarter, probably once a month, talking about occurrences and things going on in the industry as a whole. If you don't have anything about yourself to say, say something about your industry. In fact, it would be better if out of 12 press releases a year, and you should do one a month, that 10 of them had nothing to do with you per se, but were about where wireless communications is going, etc. Okay? This is a company I had a very, very close relationship to. And no one wanted to do it. And I also said, like, every time you put out a press release, you have all these beanheads over here that can put together white papers. There should be a white paper attached to it. To get the white paper in full, they should have to fill out a form. That form should build a database for you. That would create a customer base. But they're not our customers. We're looking for a very tiny group of people. Then you need a whole bunch of these people to go in the funnel at one end for a very small number of them to come out at the other. These are the people you're looking for. This is what you do. Plus, you need branding and name recognition, and you need it in all these companies. You need when something comes in that you're going to be working with, you know, company XYZ, that somebody in that company knows who the hell you are. Oh, I've heard of them, that type of thing. This is very inexpensive. This is a great way to do this. No one wants to do it. About... Three months of pushing this and going, you know what, screw it. Do what you want. I don't care. As long as your check clears, I don't give a shit anymore. This is part of why I left business. Um, and then another couple months go by, and then their competitor comes out with one press release that seems to be almost exactly what I said. It's not about them. It's about the industry. It's forward-looking. It's about changes and shifts. And it's tied to not quite as good as I would do it, but some sort of information capture. And I shit you not, the CEO, or actually the president of this company, who I had been talking to for 90 days in a row before I gave up about doing this, comes to me and wants to know why we're not doing it too. And I said flat out, because you don't want to. And the only reason you want to now is you saw your competitor do it, which means your motivation's wrong, and I don't even want to work with you on it now. Which responded with the lady turning red and pink, And saying, what? I don't want to work with you on it if this is the only reason you want to do it. Because you're not going to fulfill what you need to do to get it done. You're not going to hold your people to the, in the feet to the fire and getting a white paper done. You're not going to commit to this. We're not going to stick on schedule because you're only doing it reactionary because they did it. And you want to do it too. And by the way, I can look at the way they did it. They're not going to keep doing this. This isn't going to be regular for them. They threw this out there as an idea and it's completely disjointed. And I'm not helping you do it completely disjointed. That is focused on your competition for the wrong reasons. I had another guy. We're, we're working with him. We're talking about SEO. He was a real estate agent. When we went to Google and Yahoo, people came up he never heard of. When we went to MSN, Bing, whatever the hell they want to call themselves at the time, we typed in Real Estate Dallas or something like that, and some guy popped up number one. This is a guy that he didn't like. This was a guy that he thought was an idiot. And he was number one. How can he be number one in the search engine? He's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. The search engine doesn't care about that. So now he's all jazzed up about this. Okay, well, he's on the least used search engine that the, the least sophisticated customer uses. He's probably getting no business for this. And the guy was irate over it. I mean, I could have took a shitload of money for him because I could have said, hey, I can make Bing my bitch. Because at the time, that was like the easiest search engine to manipulate. But I didn't want to work with him because his, his motivation was so screwed up. So you can't focus on your competition 
in that way. When I worked for Fluke and I managed the sales force, they would always come and they'd say, but Agile and this and Agile and that, because they were like, Fluke bought everybody that was a competitor, including Microtest, who I had been working for up until that point. So they bought out all the, so this was like the only thing left. And it was a shitty tester. We had like 80% of the market, and the shitty great tester had like 20% of the market. And I finally said, you know what? I now consider Agilent a, a curse word. I don't want to hear it. If we're in a situation where we're directly competing with them and we have to use a word to describe who we're competing with, then you say the great tester. You don't even dignify them by using their name from this point forward. Because we were so focused on what they were doing that we weren't focusing on what we needed to be doing. This is a rule of business. You focus on your actions and your activities and what's right for your market and responding to your market. And you don't worry about what somebody else is doing unless they are directly taking your market from you. Unless you're head-to-head, -head, I don't give a shit about them. I don't have time. For most of the businesses that you guys are going to go into, the market is so huge, and you're such a tiny piece of it, worrying about competition is stupid. You need to worry about growing your own markets, developing your own markets. The next is, no business can survive without sales and marketing. Sales and marketing. Not sales and marketing. Sales and comma dash squiggly line Get it through your head, separate thing, marketing. Okay? People say, this is our sales and marketing guy. Then you are doomed for failure. Because marketing is one discipline, and sales is another, and very few people are good at both. And if you're a self-proprietorship, you need to be. But if you hire someone to do both, you're wasting your time. Marketing is a process. Okay? Marketing is a process where you tell your story and you, you generate interest and you're going to want to generate some sort of an action. Marketing is designed to create an inbound phone call, to create a subscription to an email list, okay, to get someone to come visit your website and read about a product, to get a person to compare your product to somebody else's product, and a million other things. The minute you switch from the action of in, you know, initial engagement to the point where the person is now being convinced to take out their credit card or their wallet and spend the money, you've switched from a marketing discipline to a sales discipline, and they are entirely different. Marketing is telling a story that's compelling enough to gain interest. Sales is transferring the belief that your product is right for the customer from you to them. That could be done by a website. It could be done by a, a, a half-assed trained sales professional. It could be done by a high-end sales consultant. But it, it is a different process. It's not that there's no one that can do both. But in a significantly sized company, you should have somebody generating leads. That's marketing. And you should have somebody over here converting leads into revenue. That is sales. And a website can do both. A website can go out and touch and get people interested and have blog posts and pictures and be on Instagram and Twitter and blah, 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 blah. People come to the website. But there needs to be a switch in the process on the website. When I get to the product page, the product page needs to compel me to buy. To buy. Whatever that means. On TSP, it's subscribe. Do it on iTunes. Do it on Stitcher. Subscribe to the email alert. I don't give a shit. Subscribe. That's 
that is my first buy from a member of the audience. There's no money involved, but you've committed your time to paying attention to what I'm doing. That's my first trigger sale. My second is selling you MSB. So I market, create interest, trigger a subscription, trigger a purchase. The sales process. Okay, We live in a diseased society mentally that believes if you're selling to somebody, you're doing something evil and wrong. I love when somebody says something like, I want tricks and tips for sales, because I'm like, well, get the hell away from me, because I don't do that. This isn't magic. This isn't an illusion. This isn't a trick. I'm not tricking you into doing business with me. I'm conveying to you the value that I have in such a way that allows you to make an informed decision if you want to do business with me. If you like me, do business with me. If you don't like me, but you like my product, do business with me. If you don't like my product, if you don't think it's right for you, don't spend your money with me because you're going to be an unhappy customer and I can't afford unhappy customers. And when I say that, I don't mean like I need to make my unhappy customers happy. I need to not attract them in the first place. I don't want them. I don't want a customer with a predisposition to end up unhappy about doing business with me. I'm, I'm talking specifically now when I get to paying. I don't want you buying something you don't understand. I don't want you buying something that's not right for you. I'm not, I don't want you buying something you don't believe in. Believe in what I do. Believe in the value I provide. Purchase it because of that. Or don't do business with me. Because one of the most powerful words in marketing and sales, and it applies to both here, is no. You can't have it. I don't want you. Because the reason it's powerful is it makes people want to do business with you who probably should. And it turns away people who you probably shouldn't do business with. And I would rather have, let's say, 700 overly excited, ecstatic, happy customers than a thousand and have half of them be like, eh, I really could take or leave this. The 700 cost me less to service. They give me more actionable information. They help me increase my overall revenue. And they help me find more people just like them. The 500, eh, out of the thousand, Of that 500, 200 will be annoying, pain-in-the-ass customers who cost me more to serve than I will ever make off them. And they will cost me providing good service to the other 800. I don't want them. I don't want them. It takes a lot to be able to say that and mean it, but in the end, you realize it's the best thing you can do for yourself. Um, I want to give you some thoughts on modern businesses for, for people in this audience. For most people, I think you should start part-time. I, I think that it's really easy for some people who've saved up a lot of money to say, I'm just going to go in business full-time, quit my job, and go do this, without actually having a plan because they know they can pay their bills for a year. And the comfort of being able to pay their bills for a year, they might even set up a corporation, call paychecks or something, run a paycheck through their business, which is probably not a bad idea for a lot of people if they're going to be in this situation. Uh, it helps them manage their money. It helps them uh, maintain employment in the eyes of creditors, et cetera. Um, will just kind of like, hey, it says president on my card. I guess I don't have to do anything today. Or they'll think about it or decide I'm not quite ready yet or whatever when they need to be hustling. The the bad side of part-time, though, is it's really easy to be comfortable in your job. So whatever it is that makes you hustle, that's what you need to do, whether it's part or full-time. But you need to hustle. And hustle means you need to focus on revenue-generating activities. Okay, Now, That has to be tempered with things. Like when I started this show for six months, what's your revenue model? I don't effing know. I mean, that was the truth. I didn't know. 
I knew that if I could build the customer base and, and from the standpoint of listeners, that then I could find a monetization platform. But I also had a job making really good money at the time. So I just hustled. I hustled do a show every day. I hustled to answer questions. I hustled to respond to blog comments. When my customers said, we demand a forum, even though I didn't want one, I created one. Okay, And I turned it over to them. I let go of that which I could not do well myself. Got it? But I started part-time, but I hustled. You, you got to hustle. And my, my big concern is people quitting a job and ending up a year from now financially in a really bad situation just on my recommendation. So if you're going to quit your job, know why you're doing it. Know why you're doing it. Please. Next, um, if you go full-time up front, please don't get too comfortable. I know I just kind of said that, but really, I mean, that is a death sentence. If you're not worried about your business succeeding by next week, you're probably not going to have it succeed by next month. <laughs> I mean, I want you to understand, like, I say this all the time about life, that there's two ways that you can move in life from a liberty standpoint. You're either moving toward greater liberty or you're sliding toward greater tyranny. You're either moving more toward self-determination or you're moving more toward other people making decisions for you. It's one or the other. There's no static. That's how business is. If a business is not growing, if it's not expanding, it doesn't always get measured in dollars. Like if you're like if I'm building the number of people that listen to me, if I'm building the number of people that talk about me, if I'm building the number of places people want me, and the revenue's sort of kind of on a little upward trend, that's good enough. If the revenue's on a major upward trend, but other things don't seem like they're really happening, it might be a bigger problem, right? There's a there's an operational cash flow that some businesses kind of reach, and it's because of the size of the business itself. But if it ever starts to go into significant ongoing decline, your business is headed for bankruptcy. If you don't do something immediately to change it, it's probably doing whatever you did in the beginning. It's probably doing whatever made you successful that you swear to God you're still doing and you're not. It's going back to your core, your fundamentals. Next, you're going to have one boss if you start a business of your own. And he or she, depending on what you are, needs to be an asshole. If you cannot be an asshole as a boss, at least to yourself, you're not cut out to run a business and get it off the ground by yourself. You might be cut out to get money together, be an investor, hire a team, get somebody that really knows what they're doing, and get a business established. But that's difficult, and I'll tell you why. The best people, from an experience standpoint, want to go to work for a place where it's safe and secure, and they get a paycheck. And a lot of times they're in this, when you do get somebody like that, they're in this interim stage and they're thinking, I'm either going to start my own business or they're thinking, I'm going to find that job with Accenture or something like that. And you're a stopgap. You've got some money, they'll take your money for a while, but they're not going to be like, just remember, no one will do it as good as you. They're not just going to be switched on, motivated. It's the young, aggressive people that will bust their ass for you, but they're not tempered with enough experience. Finding that balance is tough there. You can do it. But if you're going to be alone in this, You need to be a dick. You need to be like, you need to get your ass to work self all the time, especially in the formative years, which are your first two to three years in business. If you can't get a business to full-time income in two to three years, you're doing something wrong. And it should get easier if you're in a part-time business because you're doing one. You might find yourself working a lot more than you thought you would, though. I do now. I mean, I think back sometimes and think, Jack, you used to do this show with an hour of planning at about three o'clock in the morning. An hour in your car, 
15 minutes at work. And now you spend hours in planning. You spend hours in production. There's days where I start my day at 7 o'clock in the morning. The show doesn't go live till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. How did you ever do it that other way? You just get shit done when you have to. And I've added a lot to the show. There's a lot more to the show now. There's substance, there's length, there's duration, there's segments. But I didn't need that initially. I did what needed to be done initially. And I was an asshole to myself. iPhone go, I put on buzz to wake me up. So it wasn't like, rant, 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 waking the wife up. It's like 3.50 in the morning. I don't really want to get up and do this today. Get up, answer your emails, get a, a note card put together, have a coffee, walk around the garden, get your head right, get in the car and do a show now, asshole. Now. Do it. Now. Do it before I kick your own ass. It's kind of hard to kick your own ass, but you got to do it. you got to do it. Um, in the beginning of your business, people want to know about, you know, Social media this, and Facebook that, and SEO this. and I think all that's important, and it should be part of your business. But in the beginning, nothing beats just telling people. Tell everybody. Tell everybody what you're doing. Do you know anybody that? Hustle, 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 hustle. Hustle. I mean, I know people say, I want to become a permaculture designer and specialize in residential design. Fine. Okay, here's what you do then. Every Saturday, until somebody forces you to take money, this is what you do. Put together a book that explains permaculture really, really basically. and under, you know, Put some pictures together of backyards, whether you design them or not, of what permaculture looks like. Go around door-to-door -door in any neighborhood of means and say to the person that answers the door when you knock on it, may speak to your mom or dad, because it's going to be the kid on Saturday morning. Get the, the person out there and say... Do you have just five minutes for me to explain? I'm not asking for any money, I promise you. They'll probably want to shut the door in your face and say, I, I just want to tell you uh, about some of the work that we're doing in the area. Okay? Explain permaculture in two minutes. No more than two. And don't be like, uh, 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 the, what we do is we come in and, you know what, I'll put a link to a, a deck that it has my, my sales pitch for permaculture in today's show notes. You can just read the last slide and you'll see basically, and, and tailor that to yourself. And say, all I'm doing right now is getting ideas for design for this neighborhood. This is what I'm offering. I will do a design that if I did it for you, I would charge normally a client $500 for. I will give you the design for free. You're under no ob obligation whatsoever. All I'm going to do is look at your property, ask you a few questions, and to help build out my portfolio as a designer, I'm going to develop your design, I'm going to give you a copy of it, and I can even take your address off it. I would just like permission to use that design uh, when I'm talking to other people about w what can be done. And if you think I do a real good job, the way you can pay me for it is with a nice letter that says I did a good job. Okay, for every 20 people you're going to talk to, you're going to get 15 doors slammed in your face. Good, you need to learn how to do that. It's harder than you think. You get five people that'll talk to you about it, and you'll get one that'll say sure. Okay, at two minutes a door, for most of them that get slammed in your face, and five minutes for the five that talk to you, and ten minutes for the sure, you're still under an hour. An hour of work every Saturday, probably about eleven to twelve when people are up and dressed. 
and you'll get one yes. If for the next 10 weeks, you did 10 designs like that, and the next Saturday you delivered the design and said, here you go, let me go over it with you. You spent 30 minutes with him and said, this is what we could do. I have some work to do in the area. Here's my number. Here's my business card. And went on and found another 20 doors to be slammed in your face and one shirt. And did it again. Over a 12-week period of the summer, you'd have 12 awesome designs. I defy you to do that. I defy you to do that. I defy you to do that and not have one of those 12 say, shut up and take my money and do it. And you'll have to figure out how to do it. So should you do it yourself? Should you get landscape? I don't know. Play the game. Figure it out. What works for you? Okay. Notice there's, you know, I think, should you have a website? Sure. Sure. What is permaculture? How it works? Whatever. If you're good on camera, a couple videos showing some things you've done, some pictures, whether it's yours or not, doesn't matter. Your certifications, whatever. Yeah, great. Sure. Put that out there. Little blog. Talk about today. I enter, you know, I talked to a homeowner over here. You don't want to give their name and address. Fine. If they don't want that, but we discussed this and they really like birds and they noticed these birds in the area. What birds have you noticed? Whatever. You do that. So you got an hour or two a week into blogging and social media. You got an hour or two a week into talking to people. You got an hour a week into presenting a design once a week to somebody who you've done a design for. Uh, and you got five to ten hours a week into doing designs. And most people that want that business won't do it. In fact, 99 out of 100 will refuse to do what I just said, and then they'll wonder why they can't be successful. Because hustle beats SEO in that market. You need to talk to people. You need to talk to people. And you, you know what? My, my initial pitch might be terrible. If you get to door 21 and it's the 21st door slamming your face, try something different. Just figure out how to get people to listen to you for one minute about whatever you're talking. And you could do this with so many businesses. I just picked the permaculture design thing because I hear every other day someone's going to do that, but nobody does what I just said. Hey, and you know, use your warm market. Hey, talk to your friends. They will be the first. And that way, when you go talk to some cold call, knock on a door, you can say, here's what I did for Tom. Here's what I did for Sue. Here's what I did for Frank. Right? You don't have to do the install. Just do the design. Well, oh, you put blueberries in for him. I don't like blueberries. Oh, well, I have this little client questionnaire. And you ask that, I walk around, take some measurements of your yard, and I and I, I go away, and I'll come back next week, and I'll give you a professional design. Well, Jack, I can't do professional designs. Then don't do that. Then don't take that approach. Take a different approach. Do rough sketches for your designs. Whatever. Get in the game. Hustle. Nothing beats telling people in the middle. In the beginning. Now let's talk about websites. Because so, you do need a website today. Number one, sites need to initiate a process. When you get to a website, it should be clear that you should be doing something. And whatever that should be. When, when they read, they look around, they should see a way to subscribe to a newsletter. Get involved with your blog. Like you on Facebook. Send you an email. How to buy from you, etc. Sites need to make it clear how to do business with you. I have more than once been seen with my wallet frustrated, shoving it at a computer screen, saying, please take my money. I want to buy what you have. I cannot figure out how to do that. Including, we don't sell direct. Here's our distributors. Whatever it is. You have to make it clear how to do business with you. Seems obvious, but check out how many sites don't. Sites should be active. Brochures are dead. Effing dead. Do you get that? The five-page website that's just a brochure, it has no activity on it is a dead site 
unless it's a real part-time business that it's just there to be a site so there is a site. If you want the site to actually make things happen to you, you need videos or tweets or blog, even if no one reads it. Just when somebody looks at your site and says, oh, the last time they did an update was uh, two days ago. Oh, these people are for real. See, that's the mind of the consumer today. The mind of the consumer of the website, the last update on the website is from five years ago. They don't even think you're around anymore. It's a dead site. So really think about that. Make your site active. A business is its customer base. Okay, If I go buy a business, I'm not buying the fact that they can make widgets. I'm not buying the fact that they sell phones. I'm not buying the fact that they grow trees. I'm buying their customer base. There are a million ways that I can sell phones or grow trees or make widgets. What's valuable to me when I buy a business is its operational revenue. And its operational revenue is a direct result of the fact that it has a customer base. The most valuable asset of any successful business is its customer base. Online, an email list initially is your customer base. And even long-term operationally, your email list is your customer base. I put out a post on Facebook. I have 40,000, 50,000 fans, something like that. 2,200 people see it. That just means it was in their feed. It doesn't mean they actually read it. I sent an email to 20,000 people and 15,000 open it. Which one do you think works better? An email list is your customer base. So make sure you're collecting emails. Do whatever you have to, short of trading your firstborn, to get customers legitimate email addresses that are deliverable to them. Okay? The next thing is, your site is not designed to please people who will never buy from you. And that's what most people do. They have all kinds of people looking at their website who are friends that mean well, whatever, that don't know anything about website design. Or worse, they're website designers that don't know anything about website design. That's even worse. There's lots of those. If someone says to me, well, I'm a site designer and I think you should do X, Y, and Z, where's the site that you design that's making money? Well, look at how great this site is. Now, does it make money? And what about your design? And what about your orientation of this site? What about the process that you set up in this site is causing this site to generate interest and make money? Well, see, there's flow in it. Now, shut up. Shut up. Unless you can answer that question, I am not interested in what you have to say. I don't like this shade of blue. Really? Are you going to buy goji berries for me? No. F off. Okay. People spend so much time, not just with websites, but in all aspects of their business, trying to please the people who will not buy from them. Your Uncle Tom says, your Uncle Frank says, your Aunt Sue says, right? Do they buy from you? No? F off. I'm sorry. I don't have time to listen to you because you don't have a successful website, so you don't know anything about creating one, and you're not my customer, so I'm not here to please you. Now, if you have people calling you saying, I really want to buy your product, and I can't figure out how to do it on your website, now you need to fix your website because you're pleasing the people doing business with you. Got it? Okay. That doesn't mean that you can't ever get decent advice on tuning up a site from friends and family. It's a great way to get them to look at what you're doing. right? But this is how I know not to bother with somebody. In the seventh paragraph on the About Us page, you should have used a comma instead of a semicolon. Delete. I'm not even changing it out of spite now. Because if I lose business over that, I don't want that customer. I do not want the customer that will not buy from me because a, a comma went where a semicolon was. 
I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want that customer. I don't want that customer. I don't want that customer. Real customers don't have time to worry about shit like that. They're interested in engaging with your products and services. They're not looking for an excuse not to. There is the last 2 or 3% of people that you could push over the edge with some kind of fancy theatrics or you could focus on actually delivering to the people that are just lining up and wanting to buy from you. Which one do you think is more important? So when somebody says, well, I don't really understand what your company does. Okay, you have a problem, even if it's your Aunt Sue. Okay? Unless it's like a really high-end engineering thing and your engineer buddies look at it and go, I get that, and the services are for engineers. Okay, then Aunt Sue's thing goes back. But if you're doing a business and you're doing designing backyards, Aunt Sue is an analog to your customer. She has a backyard, she's an analog to your customer. She may not be your customer type, but she should be able to look at it and understand what you do and why she would want you to do it if she did. So she's good for that. But don't try to please the people that are not your customers and ever will be. Please your customers, and you will have a successful business. I also want to talk today about abilities. I've talked about this before. I don't think I've ever actually covered all six of them before, though, so I want to make sure I put them out there today. In the end, it comes down to abilities. All businesses that are successful have six abilities that they're good at. And if you don't have them, you're screwed. First one's marketability. Marketability is the ability to tell your story. If you can't tell your story in print, in pictures, in text, in video, in person to person, if there's not a story behind what you do, if it's just we have widgets, it's our widgets are manufactured in an exact, you know, a process that involves this. We manufacture exclusively in America. We do it right here in Akron, Ohio, whatever. There has to be a story. It has to be brief and short and concise, but there has to be something that creates an attachment in the customer's mind to what you do. If, you're, if your story is, we have Wilson basketballs, so does everybody. I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't have a compelling reason to care. For every Wilson basketball that we sell, we give $1 to our program in the inner city that helps use basketball to uh, encourage uh, education and underprivileged youth through our outreach program. I don't know if I'm buying it, but it's a story, and it's real, and it works, and it's going to get somebody interested. That's a story, even with the Wilson, Wilson basketball. Even with a mundane product, there can be a story if you'll create one. The next is referability. Your story needs to be compelling, motivational, and understanding enough that a customer that does business with you, when, they, when somebody else sees the product or talks about the service or comes to their house and eats the food or whatever it is, and they say, wow, where'd you get this? And they tell your story. It's not like from some guy down the road. Oh, I got this from so-and-so. This is what he does. Now it's referable. It has referability. The next is profitability. This is a hard one to miss, but so many people do. Does the actions and activities of your business yield a surplus? And it's, it's not just like a profit, because technically, if I sell a, a product that I have $1,000 into for $1,005, I've made a profit. But unless I'm selling millions of those, I'm not going to be profitable. That business is not viable, because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And when we look at the profitability of a business, if we do not get that right, The more business we get, the quicker we go bankrupt. This is another thing people don't understand. If I'm not making enough per unit, and all of a sudden I have a thousand orders, 
and I don't have my operations leaned out, as I try to scale, okay, to that new requirement, I will lose efficiencies and I will start losing money per order. And the closer I am to the knife's edge there, the faster an increase in business will put me out of business. Death by success. That's what comes when you don't have profitability built in your business. The next one is adaptability. That is the ability of a business to adapt. So if that, those orders do start showing up, th there has to be enough discipline to only take what you can handle. And to figure out how do I serve more and to go out and find ways to lean out your inefficiencies and adapt. If something you were selling all of a sudden is no longer in vogue or no longer is selling well, what do I replace it with? What do I follow up with? The ability to adapt to change because change is constant. It's the only thing that is. And scalability. And that means that when we take the marketability, the referability, the profitability, uh, the adaptability, all of those things lead to a point where if we do grow the business, the business grows successfully. And repeatability. Repeatability could be taken the wrong way if I don't explain it. So repeatability might be seen in the idea of a McDonald's franchise. So I can take teenagers who don't give a shit about anything but want a few bucks, and I can have them run 80% of the operations of the McDonald's. I, for that last 20%, I need one or two mature store managers to hire, to train, to fire, etc., and to step in when the, the headcount's flat. That's repeatability that way from a franchisability standpoint. What I mean with a business like this is repeatability means repeatability with your customer. You want something that customers buy more than once. Whether it's an annual membership, like I base my primary uh, revenue model on, or it's they come back because the product's consumable, or they buy something small first and something large second, and there's so much referring of other people, the market grows naturally. But as a small business person, you don't want to be in a one-off business. You don't want to sell to a person who buys from you and never buys from you again, because the most difficult sale is your first one. It requires the most amount of education. It requires the most amount of time. So what you hope is that when I've invested in, see, understand that a lot of times you have to invest in your customer before they invest in you. So you invest in your customer to the point where they say, here is some money. And you say, here is your product or service. You want them then to come back to you or at least refer back to you. Because some business, like if you're doing design for a backyard, that customer is probably good with your design. Even if you do a design and installation of something, right, then it's done. I, I don't need it again. But people move. People move. Remember the little name I dropped there, Patrick Seaman? Patrick Seaman was one of the guys that worked with Mark Cuban at AudioNet. And I was in sales for a computer cabling company, and that's how I had that relationship. Well, he moved into a house. He said, I want an in-home network. This is before wireless was all in vogue and stuff like that. So we went and put an awesome computer cable based network you know in with, with 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 patch panels and everything into his house he had the ability to plug in a computer long before anybody else did anywhere in the house this guy had money so he brought a t1 in right this is before everybody had dsl and what have you so he had it macked out he had a recording studio and stuff like that so you think okay well that's done you're not getting repeat business out of that Well, he was a customer, and the customer is constantly growing. So, But no, just from the, the residential standpoint. Well, about a year into it, he starts to be even more successful in his role with broadcast, and he sells his house. 
When he markets his house, one of the things he markets is this network that's in there, and it's kind of an upscale house, so there's a line of buyers waiting to buy his house. There's a bidding war, and one of the biggest reasons is he has a home network. What do you think we did to his next house? So even that was repeatable. Even that was repeatable. So then we had to adapt that business to putting in things that would enable people to better utilize wireless communications, though, because we had to adapt to an evolution technology. Right? So that's how all these abilities kind of work together. I'll give you some simple basics here. Always have a core product or service. Everybody wants to be fancy. Everybody wants to develop this. Everybody wants you know, the fiefdom concept in agriculture. We're going to have this and bees and honey and wine and meat and pick your own and this and that and chickens and cows and pigs and whatever. Yeah, businesses can grow into all those things, and they probably should, but they should always start with something that's concrete, profitable, and pays the bills. And then we grow from there. And something you're known for. I mean... You look at Joel Salad, probably the master of fiefdoms in, in agriculture. But do you know what Polyface Farms is really known for? After all this time, and after gobs and gobs of pigs and cows going across the, 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 the table to customers, is really chickens. Pastured poultry. That is what the brand new customer that just heard about Polyface Farms yesterday buys first as a chicken. Why? It's cheap. 20 bucks, 30 bucks, something like that. It's just one. I can try it. And then, hey, maybe I'm going to buy half a hog and split it with somebody. But that's what starts the process for them. So if he has a core, so should you, whatever it is. Whether it's consulting, whether it's design, whether it's a typical sort of kind of type of product or something like that. Even if you're going to move into a multi-discipline model, it should start with a core or small group of core products. Sometimes one is not enough. But you should have a core. My core product is information in, fo in the form of audio. I do video. I do interviews. I've done some writing. I have a gear shop. I have some peripheral stuff. But in the end, my core is information. It's what I'm good at. Do what you're good at. Okay? The next thing is listen to your customers. But that is trends, not individuals. If you have one customer that wants something that causes you to interrupt the operations of your business just to make them happy, don't do it. If there's not at least three or four of your customers, assuming you have three or four, Don't do something because one customer wants it unless they're spending an awful lot of money with you. I have, you know, one person a month. I wish you'd put timestamps on all the bullet points of your shows. Well, unless you're going to pay for it and pay handsomely, I'm not going to do it. We even have a gal that was doing it for a while for the Friday call-in shows and the Monday shows, and she had a little thing to tip her by Bitcoin. Nobody tipped her, so she kind of stopped doing it. I'm not doing that just to make you happy because you want it. I got a hundred thousand other people to please. Well, it's only one little thing. No, it's one little additional thing that disrupts the operational flow of my business. When I started doing the history segment, we gave it a shot. And if there hadn't been sufficient interest to keep it going, I wouldn't keep doing it. Even now that I've got somebody, that's, I'm so blessed to have Alex doing it for me. It's still another thing to do every day. Got to put it in the, the show notes. Got to read through it. Got to think about it. Got to pick one of them. 
got to come up with my own commentary on it. If I just read it and read what he has flatly, it won't be compelling and interesting. So I have to do that. Uh, back in the beginning of the show, I did a segment called Ask Clowns and Heroes. Where I'd say, here's somebody that did something really stupid, and here's somebody that did something really heroic. In the end, nobody really, really, it was a few people that liked it, but it, was, it didn't get grab traction. So when someone comes along and finds the old episodes and here's a segment or two, goes, why don't you bring that back? I'm not doing it to please them. Now, if there were a thousand people asking me to bring back Ass Clowns and Heroes, trust me, we'd have it. Because that's a trend. It's a trend in my customers. You know, I occasionally get somebody that can't figure out how the Survival Podcast website works. Can't tell the difference between a post and a post with a podcast in it. How do I listen to this one? It's an article. I, I can't spend an undue amount of time trying to change the website to, to, to please the one in 1,000 visitors that doesn't know how a website works at all. It's not a trend. I do have a little video that's how to use the Survival Podcast website, and I can hit reply, signature, drop that one in and send, and just let it go. I can do that. So that's what I do. Because that one person still is important to me. But I can't change what I do to please that one in 1,000 person. So many businesses spend all their time trying to please the minority of their customers. Please the majority of your customers. Let the minority work things out for themselves. But take reasonable effort to do what you can to help those people too. Just know the difference between reasonable and unreasonable. The minute you're sacrificing the majority for the minority, it's not reasonable anymore. Okay? Next, Excel never lies. You will lie to yourself. Don't. Now, that doesn't mean you have to use Excel. Okay? I think it's a good thing to use for business planning and budgets, but there's other ways to do it. But in the end, you need to have math. Maybe I should call it math never lies. And if something is not sustainable mathematically, you should not be engaged in it. You really shouldn't. You need a sanity check every price you set. This doesn't mean getting paralyzed. If you're in the end, if you're not sure, put it out there, charge for it, make your money. If the money's not there, raise your price. Never fear doing that. Don't apologize for your price. Raise your price to cover the difference if you have to. If no one buys it at that, you've just determined your business is not viable or you're not marketing effectively enough, one or the other. Or you're not converting the marketing into enough sales because your sales process is flawed. So either fix the process or adapt the business. All right? Next, I've said this already, so I'll be brief on it, but no marketing ever beats pure hustle in the beginning. Once you get a successful operational business, there's all kinds of shit you can do with creative marketing solutions. On day one, you put up a website and no one will read it unless you go make them read it. You can buy a whole bunch of traffic from Google AdWords and most of it will be flushing money down the toilet. You probably, if you have to ask me about it, you probably don't know how to use it. You can buy a book, you can learn, you can get okay with it. It can be good. You know, you can use it for testing markets and all, but unless you're selling a product that you're going to point, click and buy online or selling something that like involves like what I do with subscription to get people interested and engaged, if you're doing local design work, Google AdWords can be useful. You can do targeted local things and stuff like that, but the reality is you would get more done by getting out, knocking on doors, and kissing babies. Hustle. Hustle, 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 hustle. 
Tell everybody until they tell you to shut up and then go tell somebody else. The next, please understand that everything I say on a show like this could be right and wrong at the same time. It could be right for me and wrong for you. Remember, I said Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was a stupid idea. I think most of us would agree that overall it's stupid, but I'd sure like a piece of that revenue, wouldn't you? I mean, come on. If you could go back in time and be an investor, just a pure financial investor, in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers when it was just an idea on a storyboard, wouldn't you want to? As dumb as it may seem, wouldn't you want to? Every time I see a little kid dressed like a Power Ranger, I'm like, God, I got that wrong. So understand... Even though I believe everything I say is right, and even though situationally everything I've told you today I know is correct because I've seen it play out and I've seen it work and I've seen it not work, there are exceptions to almost every rule. So if you really believe in something, charge into it. But I'll tell you one rule that doesn't change. Execution and hustle and getting shit done trumps all. Again, I want to tell you about The graphic now here at the end that's in today's post. It's a picture of a boxing glove. And it says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Mike Tyson. Right? And I've heard that quote given other ways. And I can't find the quote. I wanted to get him actually saying it and play it for you today. I couldn't find it. I watched about 10 minutes of YouTube videos and I gave up. Because um, I've also seen it written as everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I think either one works just fine. Uh, your mouth is on your face, by the way. Uh, I don't think Mike Tyson is a guy to idolize or try to be like. Uh, I think there's a lot of Mike Tyson quotes that are just garbage, trash, BS. But even a blind squirrel finds a nut. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. is a perfect analogy for business. Planning's great. Ideas are great. But in the end, as soon as you go to ground, you're going to get punched in the face. You're going to have to adapt. Here's a story of really getting punched in the face that I can tell you about. Well, as a kid... I took martial arts I, on and off throughout my whole adult life. And um, I had been in martial arts at this point, you know, the first time I ever had a real class for about six months. And we went to our first tournament. I got my first belt. I was on my way to getting my second belt. And, you know, I mean, things were looking up for me. I was pretty good at sparring. I had a plan. I had this plan of this aggressive shuffle that I would come out with with the foot up And then based on what the opponent would do, I would either go into a kick or a drop punch. And if that didn't work, I'd fall. And I had this initial opening plan. And it was a good one. It worked. It was strategic. And even using it in the dojo with people that sort of knew what my plan was and they had their own, it was effective. In this tournament, when I got past being punched in the face, it was effective on others. But, you know, your kids. I mean, this was like I was like 11 years old or something like that. 11, maybe 12. I don't know. Probably 11 years old. And, you know, we're, you're in divisions. So I'm in this yellow belt division, which is you know, like your first real belt past your white belt. And uh, there's these other kids around. You're talking to them. And you're not there to hurt each other. At least you don't think you are. And uh, so everybody's friendly. You know, you're friendly with the guys that punch you in the face every day in the dojo. It's part of business. You're wearing pads. You're not there to hurt each other. And, and the referees tell you over and over again, controlled strikes. If you hit to the face, pull back. You don't actually have to make contact to demonstrate that you can make contact. Excessive force will not be tolerated. I mean, there's rules. This is not full contact PKA karate here, right? And I'm talking to this guy, and he doesn't seem like much. He's a little bit smaller than me. He's only been in his, uh, in his school for like a month, and 
Uh, he just got his belt, and you know, and mine for a while. I'm ready to get another one. I'm better, whatever. And it ends up the first fight I draw is with this guy, and I'm thinking I got this. I got reach on him. I got height on him. I got experience on him. Nice kid. I don't want to hurt him or nothing, but I got it. This kid comes at me like we're in a full contact boxing match. Right out of the gate. I don't just mean quick. I mean this guy's throwing full force, full on punches and kicks as hard as he can, like he's trying to knock me out. He kind of throws me off base, and I end up out of you know you back out of the ring. You get a warning. You come back in, and I'm looking at the ref, thinking this guy's trying to take my head off. You just told us we can't do that, and I realize he's not going to do. Like this is okay. Like I'm just not understanding what this all means. So I have to adapt. And it takes like he ends up scoring a point on me before I figure out how to adapt to this and just figure out okay, it's this guy's not going to say that this is unacceptable. Fine, then I'm going to go like I'm full contact too. I'm not going to try to hurt this guy, but I'm going to combat this. And I ended up getting past him, but that first point he punched me right in the face. I had a plan until I got punched in the face. Legit, I mean, not figuratively, literally. I had a plan. Then I got punched in the face. Not a plan. I had to change. I now had to meet the opponent at the opponent's level, but I had to stay true to the principles. You know, I mean, what I wanted to do was take this guy down, wrap my legs around his chest, and start pounding his head in. Okay, even though he was being given a little leniency with the rules, right? That was not going to fly. So I had to stay within the boundaries and the rules and the spirit of the competition, but I had to amp it up. You know, and I managed to, to beat this kid. Wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Not just because I got punched in the face. Went down, it was a three-point match. I ended up winning three to two. And it could have went the other way. And it would have if I didn't adapt. If I'd stayed like a deer in the headlights, like expecting that this ref would do what he said he was going to do. He wasn't going to do it. They're kids. It's no big deal. Let them hit each other. They're not going to really hurt. Right, they're not going to really hurt each other. Right? But all of the talk about, hey, a full contact shot to the face, that's not allowed here. It'll get you disqualified. Wasn't true. Didn't really hurt that bad. Wasn't fun, but didn't hurt. I, I still remember. Just like a pop. The hell! I wouldn't have done that up to that point. Not because I wasn't willing to hit somebody, because I thought I was going to get disqualified. Oh, that doesn't disqualify. Okay. Alright. Fine. That's how business has to be. You come out, you think it's going to be a certain way, the market punches you in the face. Bam! You got to punch the market in the face. You got to adapt. You got to you got to adjust. Your plan has to be fluid, right? If something doesn't work, you try something different. You don't sit around screwing around. You get it done. Just do it. The big thing, and this is, I feel this huge burden because there's so many people bringing me their ideas. Do not seek my approval. Seek the approval of paying customers. Jack Spiracle can think your idea is the dumbest idea in the world. He can think you are dumber than the idea that it is Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. But when it's paying your mortgage, it doesn't matter what Jack Spiracle thinks. In the end, there are over 300 million people just in our country. With the internet, you can be in business in almost every country in the world. Instead of 300 million people, you can have a, a potential market of billions of people. The truth is, if you follow the 1,000 true fans model, and you have a 1,000 people in your market, 
that love what you do enough to spend one day of their wage with you a year, you have the equivalent in revenue of roughly three annual salaries. Think about that. So what I think doesn't matter. And my belief that what you're doing is sound won't make you successful any more than my belief that, that your idea is weak will ensure that you're unsuccessful. It's the hustle that gets it done. It's the passion married to substance that gets it done. But please think with logic about whether or not something is viable. I've had people say, well, I'm going to just go into business and, oh, I don't know, I'm going to have uh, chickens laying eggs. And that's all I'm going to do. And I'm going to make enough money to do whatever. Have you run the numbers? I mean, even if you know, okay, I can sell pasture chicken eggs for $6 a dozen and my profit is $2.50. You've got it really leaned out and you can do that. Okay, great, $2.50 a dozen. All right, so if you want to make $1,000, how many dozen is that? If you want to make $1,000 a week, how many chickens does it take to do that? At the end of their laying cycle, when they're no longer profitable, what do you do to cull those? Sanity check that, right? I'm going to sell knives. I'm going to make money. I'm going to make $20 a knife. Okay. That's pretty easy math. You want to make $20,000 this quarter, you need to sell 1,000 knives. How many did you sell yesterday? Zero? Behind the power curve, dude. How are you going to get there? And what is the number necessary to be viable? That's, that is approval. Approval is knowing the number and being able to get there. And there is a place for blind passion. I, I really built, and see, this is why I try not to hold you back from that either, at the same time tempering it with reality. So when I started this show, I said, you know what? If I come out with this MSB and it's $50 a year, I need a thousand people as members and probably a little bit more than that, but a thousand retained to make $50,000 a year. That's not enough money to retire on, but it's more than a lot of people make and it would give me a base that I could build from and I could pay my bills with that. So that became the goal, thousand. At that point, It didn't matter for a minute exactly how I was going to get there, except I was going to get there. And I went with blind, raw, passion, and fury, and hustle. But I did have a basic financial understanding. This is what it takes. And by the way, it's going to cost me about $5,000 in technology a year to be able to keep those 1,000 people happy and all the other people. So I'm going to need, if I'm going to get 10% conversion... And I need a thousand. I need ten thousand listeners. Okay, let's go for that. And that's going to require a certain amount of server space and what have you. And all the financials were there, but once the quotient was understood, now just do it. That's key, man. That's what you guys need to be working for if you want a business of your own. It is not easy, but it is simple. I want you to really think about that here at the end. It's not easy to build a business, but it's simple. Easy means it doesn't require a lot of effort. Simple means it's something you can do. They're two totally different words that we've decided mean the same thing. Simple means you follow a process, you follow a formula, you stick to it, you do it long enough, you do it the right way, and it will work every time. It is simple to build a fire from friction. Tinder, you know, let's say a, a hand drill, 
right? Tinder, the right spindle, the right baseboard, the right thickness of your baseboard, the right technique. You follow the procedure, you get a fire. But anybody that's ever done it can tell you it's not necessarily easy. When you do something simple for long enough, it becomes easy. That's when you've developed mastery. And if you're going to be in business taking other people's money for what you do, you should be seeking, even if you're not already there, seeking mastery at all times. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live your be that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show you.